If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Psalms. And we're going to be in the 8th Psalm this morning. The 8th Psalm. If, um, if you didn't get a handout, you don't have to have one, but um, I, we printed out a, um, an outline for you. I think that helps. It, I'm a visual person, and so when I study, I like to both listen and see it at the same time, and that's how I pick things up the best. And so I've been trying to do these. If I get done with my sermon in time to, to, to type these out, or my wife types it for me usually, um, uh, then I try to get this done. Don't, th- don't look for it every Sunday. I may not be able to do it every Sunday. But as often as I can, I'm going to put these out for you. But we'll be in Psalm number 8 this morning. And when you get there, if you have the means and you're able, I would ask that you stand and we give reverence to reading the powerful and living Word of God. Psalm 8. We'll read the entire psalm. The title of the psalm says, How Majestic is Your Name. It's to the choir master, and it's according to the Giddeth, and they believe that was an instrument that it was played on. It is a psalm of David. He says, O Lord, our Lord. And you could translate that, O Yahweh, our Adonai, or our Master, our Sovereign Lord. How majestic is Your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And what is the son of man that you care for him? Yet... You have made Him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and you have crowned Him with glory and honor. You've given Him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under His feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the sea, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. You can be seated. In the Hebrew culture, your name represented your identity, who you were. I gave you a few examples on your list, but there are many examples in the Bible. But one of the first examples, of course, is Adam. Uh, The reason why Adam has the name Adam is because in the Hebrew, that means a man from the earth. And so basically a man from the dust. That's what Adam is defined as. Um, Another example would be Moses. And Moses is a name that means to draw out of the water. And again, you can find these in the Bible. I'm not making this up. Uh, The Bible actually tells us, I think it's somewhere around X... um, I can't remember exactly where it is. But somewhere in the early part of Exodus, whenever Pharaoh's daughter is drawing Moses out of the water because his mother put him in the the basket and sent him down the Nile River. Y'all remember that? Pharaoh's daughter came and she found him. And when she found him, she drew him out of the water. And she named him Moses because Moses means to draw out of the water. Um, uh, You can can find many examples of people's names and what they mean all throughout the Bible. Abraham, of course, means a father of a multitude. Uh, Abram, before it was uh, made Abraham, Abram just meant high father. And then whenever God told him, you're going to be the father of 
many nations. He said, I'm changing your name to Abraham. Why? Because Abraham means the father of a great multitude. And so ultimately what we see is in Hebrew culture, when, when parents gave their children a name, it was because that name meant something that identified who that child was or who that child was to be. God, in the same manner, did, did the same with Moses. When Moses said, okay, I'll go to your people and I'll tell them that you sent me, but who do I tell them you are? What do I tell them your name is? And God tells Moses, tell them, I am. And we translate that today, uh, we say it as Yahweh, is basically how we, or some people translate it Jehovah. But either way, both of those names simply mean, I am who I am. It literally means the self-existing one. It means that He is the God who depends on nothing to exist. I am. When they ask you who this God is that sent you to us, you tell them, I am. That I exist. That everything that does exist depends on me for its existence. So ultimately what God is telling them is that there is nothing, there is no one, and there is no God that is higher than He. He is the self-existing one. He depends on no one for nothing. He always has been. He always will be. And He is the one from which everything that exists gets its existence and is sustained in life by Him. We depend completely on Him. This is who He is. And so in this culture, whenever David mentions and he names God out, like in verse 1, he says, Oh Lord, when the first Lord you see is spelled out in all capital letters in your Bible. And that means that in the Hebrew it simply means, Oh Yahweh. And he's calling God by His name of who He is. And it's representative of the fact that everything depends on Him and yet He depends on nothing and no one. In Psalm chapter 8, one of the things that we see in this is that David is going to look at God, at Yahweh, and as he looks at all of the things that Yahweh has done to show us who He is, and all of the blessings that Yahweh has given mankind and who mankind is, when David looks at all of it, he understands that God is majestic. He uses that term to describe Him. So we need to define what that term is. And again, if you've got your notes, I wrote this down here. Majesty is defined as overwhelming greatness. So sometimes you see people that will talk about the mountain peaks and the, the peaks of the mountain are majestic. And basically what they're saying is that they are so great to, to look upon that it is overwhelming. That it overwhelms me to be able to see this. Um, also elsewhere in the Bible you see that um, the Bible uses this same exact word to describe the ocean and its mighty waves. And so whenever, um, whenever the psalmist or even the writers, uh, any of the writers of the Old Testament would talk about the ocean's mighty waves, that word that we translate mighty is usually the word majestic. It's usually this same exact Hebrew word right here. And so basically they use it to, um, to describe oceans and its mighty waves. They use it to describe um, mountain peaks. 
They use it to describe the cedars of Lebanon in the Bible. And those cedars of Lebanon in a previous sermon I described to you, but they were massive trees and they were, uh, they were just overwhelmingly great to look upon. And so they called them majestic. Many times you see it in powerful nations or the kings of those nations. Sometimes this word is actually translated terrible. You ever read in the King James Bible to where they translate that, that God is terrible? And we hear that word today and we think of a different thing. If you read in your King James Bible today that God is terrible, we think, okay, that don't sound right because God's not terrible. But to them, terrible literally meant that their greatness was just so massive and overwhelming that that's how they described it as terrible. And so when a great nation was coming in with great authority and great power and a great king led the way, they said that that nation and that king is terrible or that they were majestic or that they were just overwhelmingly great. And so what you see in this is that anything that is extreme in its greatness is how the Bible will describe it as majestic. And this is how David sees God. When he looks at God, the only word that he can think of to describe what he sees is majestic. Everything about God is overwhelmingly great. And so when you read it, you need to read it in that context that whenever David is describing each one of these things, he is overwhelmed at the greatness that he's... Have you ever stood in front of the ocean and thought about how small you really are? Just looked at the vast greatness of it and just stand there in awe. You know, I can't imagine it, but they said the, the, the largest recorded wave that has ever been recorded in the ocean is 1,752 feet tall. To put that in the context, the Empire State Building is about 1,200 feet tall. The largest ocean wave ever recorded was 1,752 feet tall. Can you imagine standing in front? No, you can't because you wouldn't be here. But when you look out and see something like that, the only thing you can do is be overwhelmed by the greatness of it. And so that's what David is feeling whenever he writes this psalm. He says, Oh Yahweh, our Lord. Uh, not, not only is He the self-existing one, but He's our Adonai. He is our Master. He's my God. He is my Savior. He is my sovereign ruler. He is my uh, uh, sole authority in my life. Oh Yahweh, my Savior. He says here, how majestic is your name. And remember why I told you about the name? All he's saying here is that the name represents who you are. And so when he says, how majestic is your name, he's looking at it and he's saying, how majestic you are. The name represents who you are. So Yahweh, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. The next thing I want to point out to you, and this is going to be something that some of, I don't want you to cut me off here, all right? But the next thing I want you to see is there's something called an inclusio in this psalm. Now, if you're in my Wednesday night study group, you know that there are particular ways that whenever you're studying the Scriptures, you need to understand how certain genres of, of, of writings are written, whether you're talking about a poetic language or you're talking about a, 
a wisdom literature. For instance, the Proverbs. I've used this before, but it's the easiest way for you to understand it. The Proverbs, if you try to read and interpret the Proverbs as a law, you are going to be sorely mistaken one day. Let me explain that to you. In the Proverbs, and I don't remember exactly where it is, but it says this, Train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is, he he will not depart from it. Now, if you read that as a parent and believe that that in the Word of God is meant to be a law for you, it's meant to be an absolute, you're going to grow up one day and maybe be sorely mistaken. You know why? Because just because you train up your child in the way that they should go, it does not mean that they are never going to depart from it. My mom and daddy trained me up the best way they knew how. Raised me in church, they trained me, they did everything they could, and yet I still chose my own path. Does that mean the Bible is wrong? No. It means you didn't understand what the purpose of this writing was. Proverbs are wisdom literature. In other words, when you read Proverbs, you are supposed to look at it as if generally this is true. Is it generally true that if you train your child up right, that they're probably going to pick the right way over the wrong way most of the time? Generally, that's true. Is it always true? No. And so you need to understand how to read and interpret the the genre in the correct way for you to be able to get the best interpretation out of it. Well, in the Psalms, they had ways of writing Hebrew poetry. I'm just going to give you one of the many um, literary devices they used. One of them is called an inclusio. Just a big word that simply is a way of putting a frame around a particular message that this person is trying to get across. Sometimes what they would do is in a certain section of the psalm, they would make a statement. They may say, um, give thanks to the Lord for He is good and His mercy endures forever. And then four verses down, they say the exact same thing again. Oh, give thanks to God for He is good for His mercy endures forever and ever. And what you have there is an inclusio. And it just simply is a way of putting a frame around what this author is trying to make the focal point about. So when the Hebrews, when they would read this, they would understand that in this poetry, this is the way that it is meant to be read. The author wants me to focus on this as being his main subject, and everything inside of this frame are support statements for making my main point. So let's figure out what is the main point of this psalm. Well, look with me if you would at verse 9. Here we have the closing end of the frame. The closing end of the frame says, O Yahweh, or Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So based on this inclusio, which again, let's just wipe that word out and just call it a frame, all right? Based on the frame that we have here in the first verse and the ninth verse, what is the main point that this author wants you to understand? That when he considers all of the ways of God, Yahweh, who is our Lord, our Master, when he looks at these things, he comes up with one thing that he would say to each and every one of you. The name of God is majestic in everything that He sees. Now what we want to do is take His 
support statements and we want to figure out, David, why do you say to me today that the name of God is overwhelmingly great? Why would you tell me that today? And so here's what we see. Go to the outline next. I'll outline it to you in four ways. And all of them are the way that we see the majesty of God. In verse 1 and 9, of course, what you're going to see is that in all creation, His majesty is seen. His overwhelming greatness. Why do I say that? Well, look at what He says in verse 1 and 9. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name. Where? In all the earth. And then here in the, at the end of verse 1, He's going to include the heavens in this. And so when He does that, He looks at all of creation and He says, when I look at it, I see Your majesty, Your overwhelming greatness. In verse 2, we see the next way that He sees it. Next, uh, verse 2, we see majesty is seen in weakness. And we'll go to that here in a minute. In verses 3 through 4, we have the next um, outline. Majesty seen in mercy. So David looks at the mercy of God and he sees the majesty of God. In verses 5 through 8, we see grace. We see the grace of God. And in the grace of God, he can't help but see the majesty of God. So let's take these one at a time and go through them quickly this morning. Verses 1 and 9, majesty is seen in all creation. Now I want you to look with me again at verse 1. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. Now another thing I need to let you know is if you have the King James Version this morning, they translate this word excellent. Alright? And that's not a bad translation. But again, your modern English language today, even though back then terrible meant overwhelming greatness, does terrible still mean that to you today? What does terrible mean to you today? Bad. This is not good. And so our language has, um, has progressed in a way, I, I should say our language has digressed, but <clears throat> in at least that way, our language has progressed to the point that I believe a better translation for us today is the way that the majority of the modern text translated, and that is to translate it as majestic, because that's exactly what he means, is overwhelming greatness, not just excellent, even though that would have been correct in the King James Version. But he says here, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So here's what we see. Everything in creation, whether you're looking at the ocean, whether you're looking at the mountain peaks, whether you're looking at a, a massive tree or a forest, or, um, or, or whether you're camping by a, a little stream, that just gentle stream that flows, and, you, and the peace that comes from, no matter what it is in creation, all of it were images of your Creator. When God created everything, it was because He is an invisible spirit. Alright? The Bible tells us God is spirit, his invisible attributes are clearly seen by the things that are made. In other words, when we look at all creation, what we are to see are all of the attributes of God. So when you stand at the ocean, and if you were to see a 1,700 foot wave, what God means for you to see is not just the 1,700 foot wave. God means for you to see His power. God means for you to see His greatness. Because the only way that He is able to display His glory is through created things. Now yes, 
just for sake of argument, God does have what the Bible calls a Shekinah glory, a glory that just emanates from Him, a brightness of light. But as far as being able to see His power and His love and His mercy and His grace and all of His invisible attributes, we see them through all of creation. And so when David looks at creation, he doesn't just see a vast ocean. He doesn't just see a beautiful mountain peak. He doesn't just see a, a, a flowing stream. He doesn't just see a, a beautiful animal or a majestic horse. Um, that's not what he sees. He looks at creation and he says, God, look at how beautiful you are. Look at how powerful you are. Look at how majestic you are. How do I know that? Just look around you this morning. When you wake up and the sun is shining through and it's beaming through and it, the warmth on your face and the life that it brings, what you should see and understand is that's the majesty of God being displayed for you. And so David says, when I look at creation, all I see is that Yahweh, the self-existing one, created all of this and it all depends on Him for its existence. And He is majestic in all of your ways. And it doesn't stop there. Look what he says at the end of verse 1. You have set your glory above the heavens. Now the Hebrews understood that there were three heavens. Now when I say that, I'm not talking about the place that God presides. I'm not talking about three different heavens that people go to. Alright? I'm talking about the first heavens to them were where the clouds and where the birds that's their dwelling. That's the first heavens. The second heavens was where the moon and the stars dwell, which David is going to get to here in a minute. And then, of course, Paul told us that he was called up to the third heaven, and the third heaven being the place where God presides, the place where God's throne is, the place where you and I cannot see and we cannot get to unless God brings us there Himself. Now, we can take an airplane and we can go to the first heavens, right? I've been there. I can take a rocket ship. If Elon Musk will hurry up, I can take a rocket ship. And I can get on up into the second heaven. I can even travel to Mars maybe one day. Maybe even live there. Who knows? But I cannot get to the third heaven. Only God can bring me to that place. Alright? But... What he's saying here is you have set your glory above the heavens. You're not up here in the clouds where the birds are, even though we see your majesty there. You're not up there where the, where the stars and the planets are and the suns are, even though we can see your majesty there. But you have set your glory above it all. And everything below it just displays your majesty whenever I look at it. And you're going to see David talk about that here in a minute when he says, when I consider the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have made. Remember, he's Yahweh. You made it. All I can do is ask a particular question. We'll get there here in just a few minutes. Again, the psalmist's point is that God is majestic and you can see it in all of His creation, whether it's the things made on earth, whether it's the heavens, uh, whenever you hold your baby or your grandbaby. You ever seen anything more beautiful than your baby or your grandbaby? You know what you're supposed to see when you look at that baby? The majesty of God. God, Yahweh, the self-existing One, He did this. He gave me this. 
and you are to see the overwhelming greatness in Him whenever you see it. Verse 2, we see majesty in weakness. And so now we're moving further inside of the frame here of His majesty. And notice what He brings out right here. He says, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. Now, we got to keep this in context. So David is more than likely looking at the way that God has used babies and infants to to defeat his enemies ever since the get-go. He's probably thinking to begin with back to Genesis chapter 3 whenever God told Eve... He said, your seed, the seed of the woman, there's going to come a child that is going to crush the head of the serpent. In other words, I'm going to take a child and I'm going to defeat the enemy. Notice the same way that he did with uh, David and Goliath. Goliath stood out in front of all the armies of God. And he stood out and, and and he defied the armies of the living God. And he defied God. And David, who was only a child, comes up and says, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that defies the armies of the living God? And the entire army of Israel stands on the hill shaking in their armor. The king in his palace shaking in his armor and yet a child steps up and says, the Lord will deliver him into my hands. And you remember what happened that day? God used a child to silence the enemy. God used a child to silence the foe. The same way with with Moses. Uh, God has always used weakness. You remember what Moses said? God said, I want you to go to Pharaoh. What did Moses say? God, I can't. I can't speak. I can't do anything right, Lord. And God looked at him and said, who made your mouth? I made your mouth. In other words, out of your weakness, I will be strong. And God has always sent. And the devil has always been trying to destroy the babies, right? Why? Because God uses infants and children to defeat what thinks it's God's strongest foe. Satan was supposed to be God's most powerful creation. And I'll show you that here in a minute. Satan was God's most beautiful creation. Satan was God's wisest creation, if you will. Uh, God talks about He was perfect in beauty and perfect in wisdom until unrighteousness was found in Him. But yet, here we see Satan being defeated over and over again because it is in, it is in people like Goliath and people like Pharaohs and, and it is in all the evil of the world that you see the spirit of Satan. And so when God raises up a child to defeat him, God is taking the weakest things of the creation and he's defeating who claims to be the strongest of his creation. And God basically silences his enemy and he says, I can take the weakest of my creation and I can destroy and silence you with what is my weakest. In other words, I don't even have to lift my pinky finger to take care of you. In weakness, I can silence my enemy. And David looks at this and he looks at all the things that God has done in history, even with his own life. Do you know how much Satan tried to stop David from becoming king? You know how many times Satan tried to kill him through Saul? And yet, God continued to defeat the enemy over and over and over again. But I want you to see the deeper fulfillment of this. In Matthew 21, verse 15 through 16, Jesus actually quotes this 
This is his triumphant entry, and he goes into the temple, and after he gets in there, he starts healing people. And notice what happens. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that Jesus did, and the children crying out in the temple. Now who's crying out? The children. They said, Hosanna, which means Lord save us. Lord save us to the Son of David. They were indignant. And they said to Him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise? So ultimately, Jesus translates this and He says, God has already said, He always defeats His enemy and He always ordains strength, ordains praise out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes. Now look with me at Luke chapter 19, verse 39 through 40 because this gives you the other side of it. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Because again, they were saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna. The children were praising Him. They said, you need to rebuke them. You need to stop them from praising you. And notice what He says. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, what would happen? The very stones would cry out. You know why? Because God takes the weakest things in His creation to accomplish His purpose. God is going to be praised. Y'all know that, right? He uses the mouth of babes and infants to silence the enemy. Now the Pharisees were saying, don't praise God, don't praise God, don't praise God. They didn't know they were saying that. But that's what they were saying. And Jesus said, I'm not going to tell them to quit. Remember, this is the spirit of Satan and the Pharisees, right? And the spirit of Satan is trying to shut down the praise to God. And yet, Jesus looks at him, He says, if these children were to stop, guess what would happen? God would just make the stones start praising Him. Because one way or the other, God is going to silence His enemy. One way or the other, God is going to do it, and He's going to do it with the weakest of His creation, and if they quit doing it, He'll take the rocks. You know why He said the rocks? Because what can a rock do? A rock can't do anything. But if God decides that He wants the rocks to praise Him, guess what the rocks will do? They'll praise Him. And so God uses the weakest things in this world to silence the enemy. Look at Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 12 through 15. This is a description of the spirit of Satan in a king. But he says, Son of man, raise up a lamentation over the king of Tyre. And again, he's talking to Satan when he does this. And say to him, thus says the Lord, you were the signet of perfection. Talking to Lucifer. You were the signet of perfection. Lucifer was a beautiful creation, listen. Don't, don't get that twisted. He was so beautiful, he convinced a third of the angels that he could be God. That's pretty awesome, right? He says, thus says the Lord, you were the signet of perfection. You were full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden. Now this is how we know he's talking to the spirit of Satan here and not to the king of Tyre. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, and diamonds, barrels, onyx, jasper, sapphires, emeralds, carbuncles, and crafted in gold were your settings. And settings is also translated pipes, your, your tambourines maybe, but it's a musical instrument. Because Satan was created to praise God. 
And instead, he decided he was going to be the one to be praised. It says, in gold were your settings and your engravings on the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Now here's where I want to be able to to go next. Look at Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 through 14. This is him talking to Satan again. How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you are cut to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. So one of the things that we see in this right here is simply, Satan was perfect in beauty, but he was created to praise God. Instead of praising God, he said, I'm going to be God and I'm going to receive the praise. So every since the creation of man, Satan has been trying to stop the praise of God. And yet all the way, God has been defeating him and silencing him over and over again out of weakness. Go back and look at all the stories. Let me see just a few that I wrote down. Just a few that I wrote down. Abraham and Sarah. Now he could have made anybody have a baby, right? He could have took two two healthy 18-year-olds. But that's not who he took. He's going to bring the Messiah out of a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman who the Bible says were good as dead and were past the age of giving birth. Why does God do this? Because His strength is showed in the weakness of man. Another example that you see in that, um, Moses and Pharaoh. Again, he takes Moses who, who Satan's been trying to kill ever since he was a baby. Pharaoh thinks he's so lifted up and exalted, and yet God uses a man that can't speak, that can't do nothing. And through the weakness of Moses, the strength of God shines and He parts waters. And everything that Moses does, He brings water from a rock. He brings manna from heaven. Out of weakness, God is strong. David and Goliath, another one, and we talked about that already. Gideon and his 300 men. Gideon was facing, I think, 130-something thousand men. He comes to God, he has 10,000. And you remember what God told him? You got too many. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to thin them out. And then Gideon ended up with 300 men facing 130,000. And guess what happened? Gideon won. You know why? Because out of weakness, God was strong. And I could give you an example. Joshua and Jericho. You know how the walls came tumbling down? Trumpets and shouting and marching around a wall. It is always out of weakness of man that God shines the most. This is the reason why Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 through 31, look what he says. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. You know why? Because the things that are or think they are, they're under the influence of Satan. They're under this prideful mindset that says, I am going to exalt myself to this place when man needs to understand 
Who is man? Nothing. Dust from the earth. You know why God chooses the weak? You know why God chose David to defeat Goliath and not Saul with his massive army? You know why God chose Moses who couldn't speak? You know why God God chose marching around the walls and blowing trumpets and shouting? You know why God chooses the weak? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of God, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom of wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification and redemption. And so therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast where? And that's exactly what David did. When he defeated Goliath, he, he walked before Saul. Before he went, and he said, Saul said, you can't go before this man. He's been a man of war since his youth. And you are just a kid. David said, I have defeated the lion and the bear. Or the Lord delivered me from their paw, is what he said. And the Lord will also deliver me from this uncircumcised Gentile. In other words, his boast was not in his strength, who he was. His confidence was just in who God is and what God does. This is the reason why God demands that you be saved only by faith. You will never be able to stand before God and say, this is what I did for my salvation. You will never stand before God and say, God did God saved me because He knew I was going to be a preacher. And He knew I was going to see so many souls come to the Lord. Wrong? None of that will be counted as why God saved me. None of it. Let me show you examples of it. Romans chapter 4, verse 2 through 3. For if Abraham was justified work, justified by works, guess what? He has something to boast about but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Is Abraham going to be able to stand before God and say, I was the father of a great multitude of God's people, and that's why He saved me? No. You know what Abraham's going to be able to say? I believed God. God said it, and I believed it. And He counted that to me as righteousness. Look what Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 through 10 says. But God, being rich in mercy, y'all remember that? God's rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. What can a dead man do? Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And this is one of my favorite verses. Why did God save you? You want to know why God saved you? So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I love that. I love that. That one day when I'm standing in heaven, the only thing I'm going to be able to do is just like David and say, will y'all look at the majesty of God? Will you you look at the grace of God toward me? Will you look at how rich in mercy He was? Will you look at the kind of love that He had that He could love someone like me? So that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace toward us, His kindness toward us, in Christ Jesus. 
Now look what he says in verse 8. For, in other words, here's why. Because by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is what? Somebody ought to read that to me. This is not your own doing. <laughs> God, thank you that this is not my doing. Because if it was my doing, I'd have lost it again this morning. And if it was my doing, I'll probably lose it on the softball field here in a little while. <laughs> if it's my doing, I'm in trouble. I am in trouble. For by grace you have been saved, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Why? Not a result of works. Why, God? Why? Because we are not going to boast before God. God uses weakness. His mercy is seen in weakness. Look at just a couple more Scriptures. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, But we have this treasure in jars of clay. We have this new life, this new creation in vessels made of dirt. Why? Why didn't God just go ahead and give us a new body? Why didn't God just go ahead and make us strong? Why didn't God just make us like Him immediately? Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Let me tell you something. When you look at me and I conquer anything, you better understand it wasn't me. I am a jar of clay. That's what I am. But let me tell you the reason why I'm able to do anything. Because He is strong. Because He gives me His grace. One last one, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. But He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in what? Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. This is my problem with, with, a, with much of modern day Christian music. Not all of it. I'm not one of those. I still listen to it. But this is my problem with a lot of today's, of, of today's Christian songwriters. They turn the gospel to be all about you. This is what God says you are. God says you are this and you are that. And, and everything, everything God does is because of you. Can I tell you something? No. Everything God does is so that one day, one day we're all going to stand and say, would you look at the mercy of God? Would you look at the grace of God? Would you look at how weak and insignificant I was? Would you look that I was just a jar of clay and yet He loved me? That is the only right way to view the Gospel. That is the only right way to view it. His majesty is seen <clears throat> in the weakness of man. And when David looks at this, he says, God, this is so overwhelming. <laughs> it's just majestic. Verse 3 and 4. Spent too much time on that one. Verse 3 and 4, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Here's what David sees next. David sees the mercy of God. The mercy of God. He looks at the majesty of God at the overwhelming greatness of it. And then he looks at himself and he says, God, when I consider your majesty, especially the moon and the stars, the work of your fingers. Don't, don't miss that. Don't miss that. 
He didn't say the work of your, of, uh, of your great time and it must have took you ages to do this and, and it probably took all your fingers and your hands and your toes and all of your mind and it's so complex. No, He looked at creation and He said, when I look at the work of your fingers, just your fingers, the only thing I can do is just ask this question. What is man that you are even mind, that, that you even bring him to remembrance? Why would you even bring me to your remembrance? And then he goes on next and he says, and the Son of Man. Now if you were reading in Hebrew, you know what this would say? And the Son of Adam. That's what the exact Hebrew word is that we translate man. It would say, and the Son of Adam, that you are mindful of us. You know what David is saying? We are all born under the sinful head of Adam. We are sons of sinfulness. And yet, you care for us. We are rebels. We are enemies. We are, we are sinful people against you in rebellion. And yet, you, you bring us to your mind. And yet, you care for us. You let your sun shine on us. You let your rain fall on us. You let our crops grow. You give us strength. You let us go to work. You bless us with homes and children. And, and, and you, you care for us. I don't understand it. He looks at the mercy of God. You know what mercy is? Mercy is defined like this. Holding back what someone deserves. When we were kids, we used to play a game called mercy. Y'all remember that game? Take each, I, I love to do it with my sisters because I was stronger than them. <clears throat> I didn't like playing it with my daddy so much. <clears throat> but I would take my sister's hands and I would interlock fingers and I can remember... I'd start bending them over backwards until they cried what? And then, the reason they're crying mercy is because I have them right where I want them. Do I have any reason to let them go? No, that's my sister. I love to see them in pain. I have no reason to let them go. But they cry for mercy. And they say, Lord... And they're basically saying, give us what we don't deserve. I know you don't deserve, we don't deserve you to let us go. You've got us right where, I mean, we're in, we're in subjection to you. But I'm asking you to give me what I don't deserve. I'm asking you to let me go. And that's exactly what David sees in this. He looks at man, he looks at his sinfulness, he looks at God and he says, what in the world is man and, and the son of man that you're mindful of him, that you care for him, and you hold back what he deserves? This is majestic. It's overwhelmingly great. Verse 5 through 8. We see the majesty that's seen in grace. Not only do we see mercy holding back what we deserve, but grace is giving someone what they don't deserve. Okay? Grace is, I'm going to give you what you don't deserve. Notice what the first word of verse 5 is. Yet. In other words, even though I don't understand why you hold back what I deserve, yet this is what you do for us. You give us grace. He says, yet you have made Him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You have crowned Him with glory and honor. You have given Him dominion over all the work of your hands. You have put all things under His feet, all sheep, oxen, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the sea, you've given Him dominion. Now listen, David is looking at this in a cursed form, right? Because how many of you know we don't really have full dominion over God's creation today? Anybody in here farmers? Can you tell me you have full dominion 
over your bulls, Bobby Powell? I remember one day, me and Ronnie were trying to catch this calf. We had pinned it up before. It had a messed up hook. So we decided the only way we're going to catch this little calf is if we run it down with the UTV, with the side-by-side. So Ronnie gets in it and he has a what we call a calf catch. It's a hook, long hook. I'm driving. We got her in hide. We're rolling down through his calves going fast as he can go. We're just trying to get up close enough to this calf to catch that hook. We get up so close to him that Ronnie gets the hook out there, but the calf pulls his hoof around and gets over top of it, so he misses him. Well, Ronnie tries to lean forward again at full speed, and at this time, he leaned too far forward. <laughs> and when he did, Ronnie went for about ten good rolls. I mean, just head over heels, flopping everywhere with this hook in his hand. And I am laughing so hard, I forget to hit the brake. And so I come that close to running over him. I mean, it, it, so all I could do was stop and just laugh while the calf is just running off because he's outsmarted us and we finally gave up on him that day. But the point being is you'll learn real quick. You'll learn real quick that you don't have as much dominion as you think. Now, we lost dominion in the fall. The Bible tells us that the animals began to fear human beings. Genesis chapter 9, verse 2, if you want to look that up. Animals began to fear human beings. Before that, Adam didn't have to chase no cow. <laughs> Adam didn't chase no horses. Adam didn't chase no goats. He didn't do none of that. The only thing he did was went out there and called them by name, and guess what they did? They came. He had full dominion over all of His creation, but in the fall, we lost that. God cursed the creation. The ground braced itself against us. The weather no longer cooperates for us all the time. Even though God still allows us to have gifts of grace, and we still get to be blessed by His rain and His sun, but sometimes His wind is not gentle, but instead it turns into tornadoes. Sometimes His rains don't just gently mist the fields so that everything grows, but it floods and washes everything away. We don't have dominion like we used to, but David still looked at the dominion that he had, and he was thankful for what God had done for him. But in 1 Corinthians 15, 21-27, we see that he takes this to a whole nother level other than just our dominion. And he says, For as by a man came death... Who is that? The first Adam, right? By a man also came the resurrection of the dead, Jesus Christ. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now he don't mean everybody, but here's how he defines who all is. But each one in his own order. Christ was the first fruits in His resurrection. Then... At His coming, those who belong to Christ. Alright? Then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom to the God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For He must reign until He has put all enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. But God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that God the Father is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. So here's the point that I want you to see. Here's what God has done. Even though He cursed the creation because of man's sin, in Jesus, He has given Him full dominion and full reign over it all again. And one day, you and I are going to reign with Him.
One day the Bible teaches us that we are going to reign with Him because of what He's done. We're going to be raised to life. Revelation chapter 3 tells us that we are going to sit on the throne with Him. 2 Timothy chapter 2, I think it's verse 11 maybe, tells us, or 11 through 12, it tells us that if we have suffered with Him or if we have died with Him, we will live with Him. And if we endure in faith, we will reign with Him. But not completely yet. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5 through 9. You made Him for a little while, a little bit lower than the angels. I'm sorry. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It was testified somewhere, what is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. Again, here's the point. Jesus is the evidence and His resurrection is the evidence. His ascension to the throne is the evidence that God has gave Him dominion over everything. And one day, because of the grace of God and that alone, you and I, like David, are going to see dominion in its full form. Not in just this little form that we see it in its cursed way today. <clears throat> so this is majesty to David. In closing, when David looks at creation, when he looks at the heavens, when he looks at all the earth, when he, when he looks at the strength of God and the weakness of man to conquer all of his enemies, when he sees the mercy of God towards sinful man, when he sees the grace of God towards sinful man and giving us dominion over all of His creation, the only thing that he can do is praise God for His majesty. That's all he can do. And then it leads him to ask this question, and this is the closing. What is man that you would do these things for him? And you want to know the answer to that? Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 10. For while we were still what? You want to know who you are? Listen, I'm not trying to depress you because I'm going to lift you up with the grace of God, but I'm going to bring you down first, alright? Folks, let me tell you who you are. What is man? Man is weak. And at the right time, Christ died for who? So man is weak. Man is ungodly. Alright, keep going with me. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still what? So we're weak, we're ungodly, we're sinners, and Christ died for us. And look at verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from what? Wrath of God. For if while we were what? Enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. So here's the point. What is man? You're weak. You need to understand that. And you need to embrace that. You are weak. You are ungodly. You are a sinner. You are an enemy of God under the wrath of God outside of Christ. That's who you are. But, look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4-6, through 6, because this is what I love. 
Ephesians chapter 2. But God being rich in what? So here's who God is, as opposed to who you are. God is rich in mercy. God has a great love with which He loved weak, ungodly, sinful enemies under His wrath. And even when you were dead in your trespasses, He made you alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And He raised us up with Him, and this is your dominion, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And now why did you do this, God? This is the it. God, why? What is man? Well, man is weak, ungodly sinners, what man is, but God. But God is rich in mercy. God has a great love that He loved us with. And He did it by His grace. So that, so that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward ungodly, weak, sinful enemies of His so that He could show His grace in kindness toward people like us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. People, listen to me. The only correct way to see the majesty of God, the only correct way to be overwhelmed by God is to first off see how great He is. Just look at His creation. Second off, look at how He uses weak people like you and me to silence His enemy. Third off, look at the mercy that He's had on sons of Adam. Fourth off, look at the grace that He would take people like you and me and give us the right to reign over all of His creation with His Son. And if you can't look at that and see, God, You are majestic in all of Your ways. Can I just tell you, you're probably lost this morning. And you probably don't know Him. But if you have felt the mercy and the love that He has toward people like you and me, you ought to be able to look with David today and say, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth and in people like me. This morning is more about praise than it is about conviction or turning from sin. But I pray if you don't do anything else that you walk out of here today with the right understanding of who you are, not so that it depresses you, but so that it magnifies God. So that it magnifies His grace. And one day when somebody asks you, how, how, how did you get where you are? You know what your only explanation is going to be? Because of the rich mercy that He had because of the great love that He had, and because of the great grace, the immeasurable riches of His kindness that He showed toward me in Jesus Christ. And I'll, I will need an eternity to praise Him for what He has done for me.